This episode of The Green Rush is brought to you by Heffernan Insurance Brokers. For a long time, cannabis companies have been shut out of many financial and insurance opportunities. That has now changed as cannabis companies have an option that can change their company's bottom line. Berkshire Hathaway is exclusively partnered with Heffernan Insurance Brokers, and the first work comp dividend program for businesses in the cannabis industry is now available nationwide. Rates that are filed in states across the U.S. can receive up to 40% of your premium back. So if you're an MSO that would like to have the potential to receive premium back on your work comp, give Kevin Tarango at Heffernan Insurance Brokers a ring at 415-699-2022 or go to hefcan.com. That's H-E-F-F-C-A-N-N.com. Support Heffernan Insurance Brokers' efforts to strengthen the cannabis community and revolutionize how cannabis companies buy work comp insurance. Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Anne and Louis Goldberg are back for a new episode with special guest Melissa Lavasani, founder and chief executive officer of Psychedelics Medicine Coalition and founder and president of the Psychedelics Medicine Political Action Committee. Melissa joins us this week to share her psychedelics origin story, to discuss her work with the Psychedelics Medicine Coalition, and how her organizations are advocating and lobbying for safe and effective psychedelics medicines in Washington, D.C. If you are interested in learning more about the advocacy work that Melissa does, check out all of the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow the Psychedelics Medicine Coalition, the Psychedelics Medicine Political Action Committee, and Melissa on Instagram and LinkedIn to stay current with the latest initiatives and upcoming events. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Melissa Lavasani. Melissa Lavasani, <laughs> welcome to the Green Rush podcast. Um, you know, your entire career um, has been centered around Washington, D.C., and you have a really, really interesting path um, to where you are today. So before we get into Psychedelic Medicine Coalition and the PAC, um, can you give our listeners a little bit of your origin story? Yeah, yeah. I was born in D.C. to Iranian immigrants. Um I grew up in Minnesota and then came back to D.C. in 2004, and I've worked in a few different industries, but got my graduate degree in policy, and I started working at the local city level um, doing budget policy and finance uh, for the city of Washington, D.C. And then uh, I was pregnant with my second child, and I had what they call antepartum depression, which is depression during pregnancy. Um, and it was caused by a variety of factors, but Mostly the fact that I was dealing, it was a painful pregnancy. I had really terrible sciatica and uh, um, I couldn't work out every day. And that was like the one thing I had in my life that kept me centered. I was a college athlete. I played tennis. Moving my body was always a part of my daily routine. And, and I'm realizing now is it was a central part of it. 
of keeping my mental health in check. I never had any mental health issues that I couldn't overcome relatively easily because I had that foundation of just like taking care of moving my body and taking care of my body and eating right. And with my second pregnancy, that was completely taken away from me. And that slowly started to deteriorate my mental health. I went to the doctor's office uh, for a regular checkup. My normal doctor wasn't there and a new doctor walked in the door and she's like, how are you doing? It was a very simple, benign question. And I just broke down in tears and she's immediately gets out her prescription pad. She goes, oh, I see this all the time. Here's something that's going to help you. And I was like, well, what is this? And she's like, it's an antidepressant. Um, just it'll help you get through the pregnancy. And then once you deliver your baby, um, you can just get off of it. Now, I didn't say anything at the time. I just accepted it because I was so embarrassed that it was just like this big ball of mess in my doctor's appointment. But I've had two friends now take their lives while on antidepressants. I've had other friends be on the, the merry-go-round of multiple antidepressants, getting on a new one, weaning off and getting on another one that because their previous one wasn't working. I've seen how their personalities have changed over the years. I just had the feeling that if this was something I was going to start taking, that it was going to be a long road to get off of them. And I would maybe never be the same person again. And that was a little frightening to me. So I'm in like a really rapidly changing time in my career. I'm in um, building a family uh, in, in the middle of Washington, D.C., where the, my my home and I, I told myself, I'm just going to figure this out on my own. Well, I delivered the babies. He's happy and healthy. I was okay for about two weeks. And then um, two weeks after he was born, I just rapidly declined. I was doing the very basics of what a mother needs to do with her baby. I was taking care of my baby, but I was completely emotionally absent. I <clears throat> you know, wasn't socializing with any of my friends who were in similar situations. All of my friends had babies around the same time. So I had a network of women that I could go to, but... I felt very uncomfortable in this in this place in my life because I felt I was in some kind of internal flaw in me that did wasn't enjoying this phase of motherhood. And so it, it was a very much a, a private struggle that me and my husband were going through. Um I, you know, he I was trying talk therapy. I was fully not engaged in it at all. I mean, I was basically doing the very bare minimum in my life. It was difficult enough to get out of bed in the morning, but like then for me to take an hour in the middle of my work day to go to see a therapist every week was just, it was completely burdensome to me. So um, my depression essentially went untreated and it, it spiraled out of control where I, I was experiencing suicidal ideation. I uh, was having regular panic attacks. I was in despair and feeling complete numbness at times. I had the full gamut of issues. And um, we didn't really talk about it to many people, but I did have one friend that I had had experience with depression that I was confiding in. He was like, you need to listen to this podcast that I, that I heard the other day. And it was with Paul Stamets, who is probably the most world-renowned mycologist to ever exist. I, I didn't even know mycology was a field that you could go into, but he talked about the amazing mental health benefits of, of psilocybin mushrooms. And uh, I remember listening to this podcast on a road trip down to Alabama for the holidays where my husband is from. And we were both just fully 
enraptured by this podcast and what he was saying. I'd, I'd never heard anything like this before. A mushroom that grows out of the ground can, can cure depression. It sounds really fantastical and um, not really realistic to me. I had never experimented with psychedelics recreationally before in my life. I um, had a couple friends that had tried them um, around 18 years old and they they explained their experiences as completely miserable and they were out of control and um, they hated it. So I never wanted to try any psychedelic. And but my husband was was listening to this podcast being the problem solver that he is. And he thought in his mind, you know, he had a, he grew up knowing which mushrooms are the right psychedelic mushrooms. Him and his friends would go listen to music. It was a part of their culture where he was where he grew up and um, he was looking at it as this, if this can save my wife, like I'm going to do whatever I can to try and save it, save her. So um, we started, we got, you can get all the supplies for to grow mushrooms in your house. And we started growing them in our bedroom and yeah, but where did, can we just pause for one second there? Mm -hmm. It's illegal to grow psilocybin. You can't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I understand your husband knows how to flick through shit and find the right, um, you know, like he, he knows what a cow pie is. Um, yeah. and at some point I want to hear how a, an Iranian from DC met a shit kicker <laughs> from Alabama and that, that relationship started, but, but we'll pause that. Yeah. Yeah. We have right. more in common than you would think. <laughs> I, I, I have no doubt. And again, there's a lot of bad jokes and I make a lot of bad jokes and I won't make any of them here. <laughs> I do want to understand just from, from, you know, you're in DC when this is happening, mm -hmm. you know, and while DC is an incredibly permissive city, mm -hmm. was there a moment where you're like, we're breaking the law. Like, I know oh, I need this, but we're breaking the law. Oh, absolutely. How, how did, how did, how did, and, and you work in government. Mm -hmm. How did you balance in your head the idea of, this may help me versus this may send me to jail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was absolutely a thought that we had frequently. And it's the reason why we didn't tell anybody that we were doing this. It's the reason why we didn't really ask any of our friends or people in our network if they knew how to get mushrooms. Cause we didn't really want anyone to find out that we were potentially going down this road and in my husband's perspective, like he didn't have a choice. I, at this, at this point in time, I was, we were, he was dragging me to couples therapy just so I could get in front of a therapist period. That's so a desperation um, kind of yeah. feeling. So that is trumping the feeling of like, I could get arrested. Yeah. Did you also, yeah. did you get should on by like, you should be happy. You should be feeling like you have a brand new baby. You should feel this. And, and. You know, I'm a I'm a dad. I'm clearly yeah. not a mom, but I understand from my perspective the isolating nature of a newborn. Yeah. You know, it is a very lonely, draining physically, spiritually, emotional experience of dealing with a uh, a newborn, and then mm -hmm. to co to compound on that the shoulds like I hate yeah. getting should on. Um, mm -hmm. It must have been really painful for you. To, to struggle with the isolation of the, of your, your newborn that you are not feeling like you're supposed to feel and yeah. not having a community that you can turn to. 
Yeah. Though at the time, I feel like times have changed since then, but at the time, no one was really discussing mental health, period. Um, we were still in the golden age of like Instagram moms who have it all, whose <laughs> pantries are super duper organized, whose kids have the cutest outfits on and who seemingly have it all together. Fuck and you, Marie Kondo. Fuck you. Yeah. Well, even she's come out and said, my life's a little messy. Yeah. So what year is this? Around what year? 2017. Okay. Yeah. It's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. No, but so much because of the pandemic, I feel like so much has shifted. Time is weird. Yeah. Yeah. Time is very weird. So I I definitely got shut on a lot. And a lot of it was self-imposed, which is the thing. Like, I think that if I just had come out to some of my girlfriends at the time and said, hey, I'm really struggling right now, I probably would have gotten the support that I needed from them. But I was so afraid to admit that this wasn't the dream that I thought it was, you know, and then my son had a couple of minor health issues that added another layer of stress to this situation. And it, it, everything when you become a parent everything is so like sensory overload and as a working woman who always knew I wanted to have a career you feel very conflicted about everything um you know you you pass your child off to a child care provider every day whether it be a nanny or a daycare um we had a nanny and she was a godsend to us and what fulfilled a mother role that I really wasn't playing with my son. So I think like I accredit her for my son being a normal, happy, compassionate kid because she was really so loving and affectionate to him. But I had a lot of guilt about one, not being there to when I was there, not enjoying it and not reveling in every moment that there was. And it, it, it was, it was really difficult. And we're, the messages that we were getting in society is, you know, you can have it all, you can have a great career and you can be a wonderful mother. And for me, it's like, there was something wrong with me. And to comment on my husband's perspective, it's like, and and the decisions that we make with with choosing to go down this road and growing our own psilocybin, it was, we, we were sitting at a lunch one day, me and him, we, we worked in the same building at the time. So, and it was Valentine's day and we have this rule. We never go out to dinner on Valentine's day because the service isn't as great and the food's never as good. Um, but so we weren't, we were at lunch and I told him about the, the voices I was hearing in our bedroom. And that was, a, I was at that level of psychosis with my depression and his entire face just went completely white. And he was like, in his mind, he, t- he told me later on, he was like, holy shit, I'm about to lose my wife forever if I don't do something, like if I don't call, have a serious intervention and do something crazy that, that can drag her out of this situation. So for whatever risk we took can, can, on can we with growing schedule. For one second, because you, mm-hmm. you, 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 you said do something crazy. Yeah, it's not crazy, right? It's sane. It's not crazy, yeah. It's not crazy. It's literally he needs to do something that is, is ultimately sane with and for you. Right. Because keeping, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. Right. And when, when you are sick, you have no choice, but to do the same thing over and over again, because your mind is stuck in a rut. Yeah. So I was stuck in the loop. 
It's, and I understand that feeling and it's fucking miserable. It's yeah. fucking miserable. It's so. miserable. And, 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 and you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Like I remember thinking, this is just going to be my life now. This is just who I am. And I either get used to this or I take myself out of this equation and let my family move on. And I didn't want to get used to this. This was miserable. I, I was not taught the tools to dig out, dig myself out of this situation. So in my, I had justified me taking my own life by saying, well, at least my children and my husband can move on and be happy. Like I know my husband could marry another woman and she could be the mother that I can't be for my children. Like I really thought this in my head and how tragic would that have been? I would have forever altered my my children's path in their life, forever altered my husband's path in life if I took that action. And thank God I didn't, thanks to psychedelics. But like it's that was a reality for me. So breaking the law was minor compared yeah. to what we were actually facing. How did you then? So so you are finding this this treatment for yourself. How do you then translate that into a job, into a career like this? It's such a different path than the one that you were on. I mean, I was like reading your your bio and you have, you know, this this um, this degree in international relations. You speak Persian like there is a different like career path that you were on when this happened. So can you talk about how that transition happened? Yeah. So. I was working at the local city level. Um, you know, when I got my policy degree, I assumed I'd be working in foreign policy. That uh, it wasn't for me. So I, I, I shifted and I focused to hyper-local issues. Um, working for the city of D.C. was a great experience. It's very tangible. The things that I was working on, I could see in, every day in my neighborhood. Um, it, it felt like a really good uh to be a public servant in the city that I was born in, the city I live in, the city I send my, my my children to school in. And um and then when we went down the road with psychedelics and I we I began to heal and I changed my life a little bit. I was watching the Denver decriminalized decriminalized Denver campaign happening. And I was like, well, this is interesting <laughs> and very timely in my life. Um let's like, let's learn about what this campaign is. My husband is, he's worked, was working for the city as well. He's worked on the political side. He worked for DC council for under elected official, and now is working under the mayor's office. Um, we have a lot of local political connections here. Um, in, in our minds, we thought, well, we're really good spokespeople for this within our network. You know, we we are seen as reputable people. We have very long careers and good networks. If ever a campaign were to be start in DC, um, we would we could be helpful in the background with certain conversations with elected officials. So um, we started, we connected with the campaign in Denver. We started to get introduced to people in the drug reform world. We were just, we were taking every meeting that we could get, not really realizing what the end goal was or knowing that this would turn into a career shift for me. Um, but it, it eventually led to me getting connected with Dr. Bronner's, who is, who's funding a lot of the decrim campaigns around the country. Um, the people from Dr. the Dr. Bronner's team knew my husband previously from cannabis reform in the city when he was at DC Council. 
um, they had his phone number. Um, they called him up and said, we'd like to take you and your wife to dinner and like learn about what you guys have been doing these last few months. And um, we went to dinner. I shared my personal story of healing with them. It was really the first time I told anyone about this. I mean, it was it was a, a great conversation. But at the end of it, they were like, you know, there's interest from David Bronner to start a campaign in D.C. to decriminalize psychedelics. And we would like you to be the spokesperson for it. We want you to introduce this ballot initiative. And, you know, we see this as a, an opportunity to share your story. And I was like, hell no, I want, I want no spotlight on myself. I was never interested in being like known famous for anything. I, I, I had just dug myself out of this insane hole that I was in with my mental health and they were asking me to put my family and my life in the spotlight in the city of DC and to just put it all out there. And I could not wrap my head around like keeping my kids safe from this because I had just gotten my life back. I was just starting to rebuild my relationship with my children. And I didn't want to put them in a situation where they would have to pay a price for a decision that I would make. I didn't know if nobody was discussing psychedelic medicine at this time. And this was in 2019. This was very much like even the Denver campaign was barely making national headlines, very much seen as like still a counterculture type thing. And um, I didn't know if, you know, if I did this campaign, would my children not be invited to birthday parties anymore? Would the moms at school not want to be associated with me? I couldn't protect them from this. And they are expecting the soccer moms are going to talk. Yeah, that, exactly. They're going to be going to your kid. Can you have your mom send us a little bag? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, now I discovered that, but at the time, I, I had no scary, idea. Scary though, the being the be. first is no. scary. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It was very scary, and so it came to a point where we they were. It was really important to get on the general election ballot, which was Trump's reelection and. 2020 potential re-election in 2020 we wanted to get on that ballot because we knew voters failed failed re-election yes failed re-election um we we knew that voter turnout would be very high for that and that increases the likelihood of something like this passing so we were we were butting up against that deadline and the the team called me and said you know we we really need your final decision on this. We really think you'd be great. And I, I, I said, nope, I'm not doing it. I can't. I'll help your, I'll help your campaign out in the background. I hung up the phone and I just like got so upset. And my husband was like, you should be relieved that this is over. And like, you've put it to bed. And I'm like, I don't feel relieved. I feel like I need to share my experience because I, I went through something so major that I was, that was just unexpected. And, you know, I have all the resources around me to, to make it through something. Like that. And I still almost lost my life. You know, like I have a supportive family. I have both my in-laws and my parents were coming in and out of town to help us. Uh, I have really amazing health insurance and access to great doctors here. And still I, I still almost lost my life. So what happens to women who go through this situation that aren't as well resourced as right. I am? Because you know you're not alone. Like I knew I wasn't alone. I knew it. Because when I, 
I heard the doctor say, oh, 9% of women deal with postpartum depression. I was like, 9%? Nine? Nothing. Yes. Yes. We have, we have a client called uh, Reunion Neuroscience, which is doing work using uh, a psilocybin, actually not exactly a psilocybin analog, but a psychedelic, a short, uh, a short uptake, short duration psychedelic targeted specifically to treat postpartum depression. And you know the 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 current um, medical solution is a 36 hour infusion. You have to go to the hospital, be hooked up to an IV for 36 hours, and it might work. There's no guarantee. You know the the benzodiazepines and the SSRIs they don't work. Um, nothing works. So you know there are a few a small handset of companies that are starting to target women's mental health issues specifically because but it, because it's an area that has been seriously the the, the middle-aged white guy speaking out here but like the reality is you know pharmaceutical companies and biotech firms don't tend to focus on women they just don't and a lot and, of the drugs aren't tested on women right. period right and there's yeah. hormonal differences that can influence it you know, i learned that colonopin is a drug that was designed for men but it's frequently prescribed to women all the time. And we don't even know the damage that that can cause long-term. So, and that all kind of came out in, in my frustration and wanting to make a change with our system is the fact that I had to take my baby into the doctor every week, every two weeks, every three weeks, he was constantly getting checked on, but I had one checkup where they told me I can now have sex with my husband which is fine. That's important. But there's so many other issues. There's different milestones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And much different milestones. It's like, that's the one big appointment that everyone <laughs> waits for. It's like, oh, I can work out and have sex. Great. Like <laughs> I had so many other things that I right. wish I had uh, my, my healthcare team was looking at that. It, it was like the entire process was completely frustrating for me. And I saw the, the gap between you know, what kind of care women get and what kind of care a new child gets. And it was, it was drastically different. Melissa, as you've started to speak to elected officials about the, the, these issues specifically, but the broader issues of the use of psychedelics to treat mental health care, to, to, to treat depression, anxiety, OCD, any central nervous system disorder based on trauma. Do people understand, do, do, you know, when you talk to a congressman, a senator, the mayor of D.C. or their staffers, do they understand the fundamental difference between oncology and mental health or they just just don't get it? They get it. They absolutely get it. And I think they get it because they all have a personal connection with somebody that has suffered through something that this can help. I think they've all either had a sister, a brother, an uncle, somebody that struggled with addiction or struggled with their mental health or took their own life. Everyone that I have met since I started this process is connected to somebody that could have potentially benefited from a tool like psychedelics. The problem is, and the reason why there's been inaction on this from our lawmakers is that it is so heavily weighted with baggage from the war on drugs. We are all programmed to think about drugs in one specific way, and we can't 
kind of undo that. We can't undo that baggage on our own. We need to be really careful and strategic about about how we give information to lawmakers so that the pendulum doesn't swing in the complete other direction and cause harm in other ways. You know, the whole goal with the work that I'm doing is to ensure that we constantly stay in the middle lane and that we're not creating opposition to this issue because quite frankly, in my mind, there there should be no opposition for wanting better mental health. There should be no opposition for wanting better science-based solutions for the American people. Um, th- these are all issues that their constituents really care about. We just need to undo the baggage that it comes with so they're willing to stick out their neck and expend some political capital on this and know that they're going to be okay in their re-election. At the end of the day, politicians are will follow issues that they know are not hard are to going be the to first, get them reelected. Though, yeah. Right? Like but the there's yes. the, there's like the similar I'm seeing that similarity right now. You know, yes. between you and what you're asking these politicians to do. Yeah. And I can really relate to two politicians that don't really understand this issue. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I haven't been a member of the psychedelic community for many, many years. I've never been to Burning Man. I, 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 I've been on the other side of it and I've had my preconceived notions about psychedelics and who takes them and why I, I know where their head is at when, when I talk about these issues and I'm in a room with somebody that's kind of furrowing their brow at, at, at the subject matter, I can relate to them and I can get them to a point where they see that this is not a, a bait and switch to get mushrooms in convenience stores everywhere tomorrow. You know, like I think that 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 is a very long term play, but you know, let's let's think about the starting point for all this and what what starting point are politicians on both sides of the aisle going to be OK with. And that is really leading with the science. So, you know, there are some politicians who have been out front. You know, you think about an Earl Blumenauer, for example, who ha- he has been on, in the vanguard of taking on the the war on drugs. You know, he started clearly with the cannabis um, industry and being a supporter of it, you know, and has also moved really into the fore in psychedelics. Who else would you point to that have been in the vanguard of the, of the right? I think on the Senate side, we absolutely Cory Booker and Rand Paul, um, they've now introduced two pieces of legislation that were focused on psychedelics, um, the Right to Try Clarification Act and uh, the Breakthrough Therapies Act, which got reintroduced again this for this Congress uh, a few weeks ago. Um, I think they see the writing on the wall. I mean, I think Rand Paul, you know, he, he stands a bit alone in his party. He's more of an independent, but he's a medical doctor and he understands this argument that we're making. Mm. (laughs) He's an an optometrist, right? So like, (laughs) and we used to represent VSP and I know how important ODs are, but you know, yeah, like it's like a chiropractor. He's in the field. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yes. But, but Cory Booker, I, I know that, you know, some of his staff is very passionate about this issue and that has 
absolutely influenced his opinion on this uh, issue, but he's you know, he's going to be a really great champion for this cause for the long haul on the House side. Uh, of course, Blumenauer is is uh, a trailblazer in that regard. Also, Correa from Cal- a lot of the California uh, politicians are are right there. Correa. Um, we've got Ro Kahana. We've got um, Nancy Mace. Uh, Luttrell from Texas. A lot of the Texas delegation is really seeing the writing on the wall because of its impact on the veteran community. Uh, so they, we're slowly getting kind of chipping away at all these corners of um, the corners of these political parties. And, you know, the, with the caucus starting la- late last year, the psychedelic caucus, I think that that's going to be a really amazing vehicle to continue to educate members on the Congress about this issue and how advancing clinical treatments for this is just going to benefit so many Americans. Um, so the, it, it is happening and um, and it's happening in a lot of the, the most unlikely places. You know, there are lawmakers on each side of the aisle that, you know, if, depending on the argument that you're making, really understand that the, this mental health crisis that this country is in is is coming to a head, if not already has come to a head, and we're just in the throes of it right now. But it, with about like a third of our country being classified as having some kind of mental health issue, like that's a problem that is affecting their constituents daily that they're, they're going to need to address. So I want to talk about... Um... The PMC, like let's, <laughs> you know, we're like 30 minutes into this and and your story is so fascinating, but I do want to talk about like specifically, you know, what is this organization that you've created? What is its remit? And then there's another organization that we want to talk about too. So let me tee you up for that one, Melissa. I've started that organization actually during Decriminalized Nature's DC campaign. Um, so I've had this idea that, you know, I was really enjoying my time on the campaign, talking to DC residents about this issue, telling them my story, telling them what's going on with the latest in research. That campaign won by 76%, which made history for the city of Washington, DC. That means almost 80% of the city felt a need to vote for something that could change what opportunities were available for mental health treatments. But afterwards, I had noticed something and I had questioned myself. I was like, I was really excited. The campaign did really well, but also I was like, well, what now? It's not like doctors are going to start prescribing (laughs) psychedelics, you know, and I I didn't know what the actual impact of this was going to be. Um, But what I had noticed is that suddenly all of the cannabis sellers were now selling mushroom products. They were selling DMT cartridges. It was suddenly available everywhere and demand for it was really high. And I started to kind of internally panic a little bit, you know, like, oh, gosh, what have I created? Um, and, And what is this impact of decrim? So we had we had conversations with the Metropolitan Police Department because I wanted to be sure that what we did, they understood and they they weren't going to enforce it or they were going to follow the, the law of the land and follow what voters wanted. 
in the middle of the decrim campaign, I saw the Washington Post ran an article that said that um, the same, if not more, Black residents of Washington, D.C. are still being arrested for cannabis offenses. Now, cannabis is legal in D.C. So that made me think, okay, why are people still being targeted for this and why are they still being arrested? Like that, that, that means that this work is incomplete and what is the missing piece here? And the missing piece is absolutely the federal government. So in creating Psychedelic Medicine Coalition, I wanted to create a pathway towards adoption of psychedelics in the most practical way without creating opposition to this issue. I felt like, and during the campaign, we had Republican opposition within the House of Representatives. DC is not a state, it's a city. It has oversight by Congress. Um, they control, Congress controls all of our laws and our and approves all of our budget. And I, I thought, well, like, how can we get how can we move forward with this issue without the federal government's buy-in and without it being completely nonpartisan and creating a coalition that represents the entire ecosystem and getting that ecosystem to speak to Congress in a, in a way that they understand that this is a legitimate form of medicine and this needs to be explored and you don't need to oppose this. Because I had watched how cannabis reform had gone in. It was very much driven by what was happening at the states. And then the federal government was second to the table at this discussion. And then it's been this struggle between the states and the feds. And, you know, there are some serious issues that have impacted the cannabis industry that could have been addressed earlier on, but that weren't. And that was a lesson learned for the psychedelic space from the cannabis reform movement is that we need to engage with the federal government and this needs to be driven from the top down and not the bottom up because there's issues that only the federal government can address and getting the government at that level to buy into this will kind of make everything else happen. And the need for these local movements to um, be successful. There was it relieves the pressure from all of these local movements. And I knew that if we could just get the federal government to greenlight research funding, which is a really neutral ask, it's 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 not supporting research funding for something is never a partisan issue. Right? Republican how can you be against Democrats. that? Yeah. Yeah. How how can you be against advancing science? So I, I can. Um, I, I, I'm a com <laughs> I'm completely opposed to the advancement of science. I would like to roll back uh, in internal <laughs> electricity. I'm opposed to it. Right. So if a lawmaker said I'm opposed to this kind of research, then you know what kind of blowback that would have on them. They're not going to do that. Um, you know, we could have discussions about rescheduling these medicines and rescheduling from schedule one is absolutely necessary for um, this issue to move forward. But like, let's first educate members of Congress on this issue in a way that they understand this is not the bait and switch to to get to recreation quickly. I, I want There are a tremendous number of companies out there that are pursuing the FDA path, which they have to. They want to if we're going to treat these medicines as medicine, you know, and not have them as medicine with the quotes around them, but you can remove the air quotes and they are legitimately 
prescribable medicines. You must follow the FDA path. Where does where does federal regulation or fit into that? Because you know, for example, it looks like MAPS is going to get MDMA, you know, assisted therapy approved by the FDA late this year, or early next year. It's still going to be a Schedule One drug, drug, right? It's not like it, 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 it. I mean, conceptually, you would think immediately, okay, Schedule One drug. One of the, the definitions is it has no medical benefit. But if the FDA says MDMA has a medical benefit, doesn't that immediately trigger a rescheduling of some kind? So putting that, tr- so where does Congress fit into this whole paradigm? And and concomitantly, and yes, I use that word in a sentence. Um, you know, my kid's studying for the P, the uh, ACT, so I get all. I am getting a lot of really good words. I've got all the words, but, you know, concomitantly, you guys not only have the coalition, but you have a PAC, right? So so how does the PAC influence regulation and legislation? And so talk, talk like, kind of put it in a bowl, mix it together, and answer the question. Well, it's interesting right now. I think that there are pockets of federal government that are super curious about psychedelics. FDA absolutely is one of them. Uh, I, I don't even know how many psychedelics are in clinical trials right now, but it's it's quite a, it's it's a, many of them, um, and that's either protocols around psychedelics or novel structures um, or analogs of other existing psychedelics. So. Um, Rescheduling is not automatic once a, once a drug gets approved. There has to be a petition that's sent to the DEA, and that's completely controlled by the DEA, um, the scheduling. And um, there's no guarantee of anything. Uh, and the federal government can drag its feet on anything. And it's on the psychedelic ecosystem to be driving this train with the federal government because it's such just like a massive institution that we need to be um, giving them the evidence that they need to move forward with this. So NIH has given out, I think, two grants at this time uh, for psychedelic research. Um, There's DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project that's given out money for psychedelic research. And it's happening, but it's happening at, 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 at not a quick enough pace and a not enough money is going into this. So it's it's been under $10 million that's, that's gone to psychedelic research from NIH. And I think what's happening is there's curiosity there. Um, they're, they're, they know that the, the science is there if they could just get some cover from Congress. I think if people want to do this work, they just want to know that Congress is not going to come down on them um, with an iron fist if they start, you know, doling out grants for psychedelic research. So, so the PAC, the, you're creating a political action committee, which basically is going to solicit funds from the psychedelic industry to help advance the lobbying efforts. Before I ask you to explain that, well, I just I want to ask a, a, a an adjacent, not concomitant question. You know, as you walk through the hall, halls of Congress and you're talking to electeds and their staff, are you hearing – either subtle or not so subtle messages about the, the, the dangers of psychedelics that seem to be um, 
coming from big pharma because the the amount of money that either the generic forms or the patented forms of mental health medications generate is tens of billions a year annually. I mean, are you seeing the big pharma out there, you know, casting aspersions? Uh, no, I don't see them yet, but I know it's coming. And that is why I have a sense of urgency to educate members of Congress and their staff about this issue, because I want them to have the facts before the propaganda starts entering the space. And I know that like the psychedelic space can't even begin to compete with traditional pharma. These are companies that have hundreds and millions of dollars of budget to run campaigns against this. And um, this is far too important for that to be the first information that our lawmakers to hear. Uh, we, and, then, and that's why it's so important to, for us as the psychedelic space to think strategically about how we move forward with this. Um, we, we are going up against a really sophisticated machine that knows how to get things done in Washington. And the psychedelic space needs to act just as sophisticated as the pharmaceutical industry to counter that and to be sure that that can't like dampen any of the decades and decades. And in Max's case and in Rick Doblin's case, 37 years of work that he has put into this. So that's really was the impetus for starting the PAC to be complementary to the advocacy work that the coalition is doing and to make sure that we are supporting elected officials that are currently sticking their neck out. We want to give them political cover for being the first out the door in supporting some of these issues around psychedelic medicine. And then also you know, supporting candidates who are just coming up that would be willing to use their new political capital to advance psychedelic science. And also calling out the lawmakers that say that they prioritize mental health, that say they care about their constituents, but aren't willing to stick their neck out and do something. So that is, the PAC is really I mean, we can go on and on about what we think about, you know, money in politics and, you know, should money be in politics? And it, honestly, that argument is completely irrelevant. My personal opinion about the money that is involved in politics is irrelevant. This is the system that we are playing in. And if for us, the psychedelic space to be seen as legitimate and to, to be to give us the environment that can help the most people possible, um, I we got to play the game that everyone else is playing right. and we've got to put money towards this and we've got to support elected officials and we've got to do the polling and we got to to run the national PR campaigns, which is what the PAC is going to be doing as well. And we got to be speaking to people that don't reside on the coasts of our country. We have to be speaking to middle America. We need to be speaking to the Republican voters in Oklahoma and getting them to understand that this this is not some hippy dippy issue. This is this is serious solutions for people that are struggling with really serious issues that have yet to be addressed by our healthcare system. So it it, it is it is critical that we all play this game 
that is being played by literally everyone else, or we're going to get left by the wayside and it's going to be 20, 30 years down the road. And, and MDMA therapy will be, will be legal, but is it going to be $30,000 for a treatment? Like who, who's going to be able to afford that? These are all issues that the federal government and only the federal government can address. I just want to put a fine, finer point on it that, you know, you've worked in the the decrim movement like we, we've talked about, but this PAC is not pursuing that at the federal or state level. I just want to. Yeah. Yeah. De- reiterate I, that. No, I think a lesson learned for myself after running a decrim campaign was I don't I didn't. I don't know if that's where the biggest impact can be. I think that the word decriminalization is so incredibly polarizing in itself that that creates an environment of hostility within certain corners of political parties. I mean, it's not just Republicans. There's a lot of Democrats that don't really like decriminalization either. They just aren't as vocal about it. So in in, in knowing that, uh, turning this issue in, into a political one will ensure that this issue drags out for much longer than it should. Like we've got to focus on science-based solutions, especially at the federal level. Um, they're seeing how cannabis decriminalization is completely stalled right now. And it's been decades of work that's already gone into this movement. I, I really, really would hate if decades pass and we haven't advanced the science and, you know, the research is not continuing to explore new indications to treat. And, you know, and the the research is not showing uh, what like safety profiles of people who take this have to be. And, you know, we we still are unsure about pre-existing condi- conditions that people have and past history with um, mental health issues, like who can take what psychedelic. There's still so much that we don't know that the, the federal government just injected some of its own capital in it. We could figure out some of these issues in the in the midterm. Um, you know, we have to be supporting science um based pursuit of all this and you know that clinical treatment and you know i think this has been a really big discussion in the psychedelic space is like the commercialization of psychedelics and decrim um you know i i think like it it worked out for me i grew my mushrooms i'm a very fortunate case i feel very lucky i happen to be married to somebody that has the knowledge base that we did this safely but for the vast majority of Americans uh, are not used to kind of going rogue with their own health care. You know, I think many Americans want to be in a clinical setting and want to have a protocol they follow. I think sometimes I think to myself, if I, you know, if I didn't grow my own mushrooms and I had the option of going to a doctor's office and, you know, the option to follow a specific protocol, like you see in clinical trials, like maybe my pathway to healing would have been much more quicker than what it was. You know, this is something that I'm still dealing with on a daily basis. You know, it's a daily practice. And I think that it's a different way of treating a healthcare issue for us. We're all very much used to quick fixes and, and popping a pill and, you know, hoping the pill does whatever internal magic it needs to do to fix us. But psychedelics is a, is a completely different animal. So I think that if we 
created systems that supported the vast majority of Americans in getting this kind of treatment and making sure there's safeguards around it, it's going to be that much more successful. And then we can start having conversations about how to advance this issue even further beyond clinical treatments of this. But I think starting with the science base, starting it in a clinical model is is a way to ensure that we don't create an opposition, that this is truly about helping people who need help that you know, haven't received the care that they need with our current healthcare system. So Melissa, as we head towards wrapping up, I mean, we're, we're, we're approaching an hour. Um, we're going to put in the show notes, how to get in contact with both the PAC and with, with the psychedelic medicine coalition. But if you want to say how, if anybody wants to donate to this cause, how can they do that? And uh, how big a check does it have to be? They can write as big of a check as they want to write. <laughs> the PAC can take unlimited donations. So um, please go to our website, psychedelicmedicinepack.com. Uh, donate to us. This, you know, this is about helping people. And, you know, I can I can take a, a $5 recurring donation every month if that's all that you can you can afford. And I can also take, you know, six figure checks and, you know, put that to really good use. And recurring every month, out. six figures recurring every month. I'll take a six figure recurring check every month. That would be extremely helpful for our cause and would probably allow us to run a you know, and, and it's all it's all a political campaign, even even the advocacy you you we can't really separate it. The perception of this issue is is really critical and it and it has to be packaged in a very D.C. friendly way. Um, you know, lawmakers are, are are very scared of these types of issues. And if it, if they sniff out any kind of funkiness with this, it, you know, we got to be really strategic and clear about what we're asking for and um, keep it focused on the clinical advancement of psychedelics. And um, that's where they're at now. And that's where we will meet our, our lawmakers and we will, we will get them to the finish line um, based on the science that exists and what we can potentially do to help people. Before we let you go, I do want to talk about the event you just had in D.C. and possibly plug the next event that you're going to have in D.C. So I want to give you a couple of moments to talk about that, too. Yes, we've um, hosted two briefings, but we just had our most recent briefing um, on March 7th, where Tim Ferriss spoke with Rick Doblin and Matthew Johnson from Johns Hopkins University. Um, we talked about the the critical need for research funding uh, from the federal government and, and what the potential here is. And, you know, we have all these amazing institutions in the U.S. doing this research and they're really bootstrapping it and putting it together, putting together research with philanthropy. And um, it's time that the federal government put some skin in the game and um, explore this as a as a treatment option. Uh, we took around our panelists to um, a few meetings with uh, Republican House members and, you know, just talked about what's going on in the veteran community, especially um, with 44 veterans a day taking their lives. It is there is a really critical need to act on this issue and make sure that veterans are getting the care that they need and that we should be treating veterans here in the states and not forcing them to go to Mexico or Peru to 
to sit in ceremony with psychedelics. Um, we, there are options here to, um, to include psychedelics into our traditional healthcare system with a few changes. And we need to be exploring that as, as a, a duty to the American people. And it, it was, it was a great time. And, you know, we, that's kind of where psychedelic medicine coalition it can really help with is, you know, being that go between with the federal government and connecting the psychedelic space with the federal government. We are hosting a um, a policy and investment conference on October 17th and 18th later this year, where we will bring together officials from FDA, DEA, NIH, um, the new agency, ARPA-H, that's starting, which is Advanced Research for Healthcare, um, and bringing those officials, those decision makers within government side by side with um, industry leaders in the psychedelic space and really hashing out what the issues are and coming up with solutions for how to move forward. The only way we're going to overcome some of these issues in the psychedelic space is just to be in, in conversation with the federal government and see them as almost like a partnership, you know, and not have this antagonistic, you know, kind of um role with the government like we you we want to be working with the government and we want to get them to a place where they see the light at the end of this tunnel and they they know that this is an important issue to get behind this is this is not in opposition to the government we are working within the boundaries of what the federal government can do and um advancing clinical treatment so that conference you know this is going to be the first in-person conference for pmc um i i anticipate a lot of really great com conversations about it. it's going to be at the national press club which is an iconic uh dc venue and um you know i think that this is the beginning of the psychedelic industry of having a really great relationship with the federal government and hopefully this will advance psychedelics through um through the process that much quicker and hopefully we can get the care that people need melissa thank you so much for your time this has been awesome we didn't get to hear uh, the story about how you married a shit kicker but that we'll save that for next time <laughs> we'll do that one next time yeah it's a good story. awesome i, I can't wait <laughs> thank so you. thank you yeah. so much yeah thank you guys so much Huge thanks to Melissa Lavasani, the founder and chief executive officer at Psychedelic Medicine Coalition. That's psychedelicmedicinecoalition.org and the founder and president of Psychedelic Medicine Pack, which can be found at psychedelicmedicinepack.com. She is one busy lady and we thank her for all of her work. As always, thank you for listening. If you'd like to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. One take, Shay. One take.